You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. What follows may make for difficult listening. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman sat down with me last Thursday, days before news broke in the New Yorker magazine that four women have accused him of physical violence. Schneiderman came to his high office thanks to the left. Women's groups in particular, and in our talk, you'll hear him return multiple times to his record in support of women's rights. Looking back on our preparations with his office, there were signs maybe something was amiss. His communications director requested, surprisingly to us, that we not mention the Harvey Weinstein case or hashtag Me Too or the Attorney General's past relationships. It is a complicated thing, listening to a man I respect, and who has in fact done much to support progressive causes over his 25 years in public service. But we thought it was important to post this now, so the public has access to what turns out to be Eric Schneiderman's last long-form interview as Attorney General. I want to just read from among the top elements in your bio. We were all marveling. Uh, on the, the production staff here. Only child, grew up in the Upper West Side. Father was born in tenements, became big shot corporate defense lawyer, chairman of City Opera. You graduated from Trinity in 73 and Amherst in 77. Studied abroad in Hong Kong, double major in English and Asian studies. Eventually you graduated from Harvard Law School in 82, but it says here that you were the deputy sheriff of Pittsfield, Massachusetts from 1977 to 1979. Is that a fact? Yes, it is. I was a deputy sheriff in Berkshire County. I dropped in and out of school a lot. When I was 17, I graduated from high school, and it was a year before Roe v. Wade. Instead of going to college, I I got a job in an abortion clinic in Washington, D.C. Abortion was legal in D.C., illegal in the whole southeast United States. No one thought Roe was coming. And so at 17, I was going out to National Airport meeting women flying in from states where they couldn't. What do you think motivated you to do that at that age? Why? You know, I mean, I, I was 17. It wasn't really that carefully 
thought through, I, you know, I had a, some sort of office job initially, and it was really boring. And what did your parents say? You're their only child. I was just gone. I mean, I, I left home and never went back, and I just had adventures. There were people setting up clinics because they believed Washington would be the only outpost for decades, that women would have to come there from Georgia and South Carolina and Tennessee because um, no one thought Roe was coming. So people were setting up clinics. I thought it sounded really interesting. And uh, the people who were doing it were really amazing people. And so, you know, I, I just – it had never really occurred to me that it was – as controversial as I later learned it was, and it had a big impact on me. I mean, it, seeing women essentially fleeing oppression in their states, coming in secret, arguing with the doctors that they had to go home before this medical staff thought they were ready because they snuck out on their families, their employers. A lot of the times, their husbands, they didn't want them to find out. So it was just an amazing... But when you when you add that, it only puts a finer point on what I'm saying, which is you have a very eclectic path to running for your first office. You, 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 when, when, you, when you go, you study abroad in Hong Kong, this was under Amherst? I took a year outside of Hong Kong while I was in college. So abortion clinic, go for a semester, drop out again, go back for a semester, uh, meet Bob Thurman, who was my Tibetan Buddhism professor, and he inspired me to study Chinese. This gravitation toward Asian studies, was that something in your home? or Not really. I mean, I just was... Uh, you're like a leaf in the wind here. It was a t it, now it was, it was a time of big ideas. I mean, this is the era of the anti-Vietnam War movement, the civil rights movement. I was in demonstrations when I was 14, 15 years old down in Washington. And there was just a sense of tremendous possibility. It's a time that's hard to explain to people now. And what I feel from the young people rising up today, this is the first time I felt that level of energy since then. That this, is, this reminds me of the late 60s and early 70s, what we're seeing now. And look, it was also a time of, you know, rebellion. We were all, we grew our hairs along. We were, right. you know, uh, we were not really that interested in what our parents thought. We thought they were squares and we were going to change the world. Your first job in law enforcement is as a deputy sheriff in Pittsfield. This is many years before you become the attorney general of the many, state of New many York. Many, many years. And uh, what was that experience like for you? Was it, was it kind of lighthearted and not that serious? Or was being a sheriff in Pittsfield, did it have some... It was... Danger uh, or pressures? Um, not much. I mean, it was really, you know, most of the folks in the jail were low-level offenders. It was, But it was a, a huge lesson for me in, you know, how the people at the bottom of the system function. Because these were mostly poor, uneducated people who sure. had, were in and out of the system. Small-town poor. So Yeah, and rural poor, because back then there was—we had moonshine runners in the jail right. from South, South Berkshire County. And— uh, there was one guy who had been born in jail when his mother was doing time, and he and his brother were there. And so it was really – it was a great lesson for me to see how the system operates for the poor and the uneducated. And before going to a place like Harvard Law School, I think it's good to have a little dose of that. You know, your father was a big lawyer, corporate lawyer, and he defended a lot of corporations, whether they do good or bad. Did it influence the job you have now? Yeah, but then, you know, time went on, and I – got older and got, you know, got more appreciation for the older generation and what they had done. And he had the sense to step out of the shark lawyer scene with still a lot of years to live. And the last 20 years of his life were really the best because he just did 
the public interest work he wanted, WNYC, and was on the board of NARAL, uh, City, City Opera. Opera. Yeah. And so um, for him to have, having grown up the way he did to live to see his son become the attorney general of New York State, that was a quite a leap in life. So when you ran for the state senate in 1998, uh, that was your first race. And I remember you reading or you would describe to me when I first ran into you back in those days um, and you were in office that it was a, it was a strangely con- con- uh, gerrymandered district, correct? Yeah, well, it got stranger after I was elected. Yeah, <laughs> it, uh, uh, After one term in the Senate, uh, I think I was regarded as such a pain in the neck that the uh, leaders of the Senate redrew me into a 68% Latino district anchored in Washington Heights, knowing that I had studied Chinese in college, not Spanish. So I learned how to speak Spanish and had just a tremendously rich experience. Uh, How's your Spanish? With the, uh, uh, do you do good? Is Mas it good Spanish or is it Bloomberg, Bloomberg Spanish? I don't have, I don't have, he, his Spanish is not bad. His accent is challenging, but Mike <laughs> does speak pretty good Spanish. Um, but, I, it, you know, I learned Dominican Spanish and I bonded with a lot of the people in that community, started going to the Dominican Republic, had all sorts of interesting collateral consequences, I discovered this lost Jewish community and found the the archives of it were sitting in some uh, storeroom down in the northern part of the Dominican Republic. Because in And I learned this history that I had never known, that in 1937, um, at the big AVN conference, when they were talking about Jews trying to get out of Europe, the one country that said, we'll take all the ones, all the Jews we can get here was the Dominican Republic. And that was a history that really had been lost. So we raised the money to bring send the archivist from the Museum of Jewish Heritage down there and had a great exhibition. And then someone wrote a musical called Sasua, which is the name of the community, with half Jewish kids and half Dominican kids performing. So a lot of uh, great experiences uh, in my new district and with that community. And to this day, uh, you know, I consider myself a Dominicano adotivo. You know, you're a New Yorker who lived several different places during the course of your college years, but you're a New Yorker born and bred, and I'm wondering what it was like for you to go uh, when you arrived at Albany to, to go to work. Well, I had, I had uh, after I got out of law school, I, I clerked, and then I went into private practice and was an associate and a partner in a, in a big law firm. So I had, uh, you know, I went up there with that experience, and Albany was not a place that ran by any normal rules of business, and it was always raided by the Brennan Center and other uh Others who studied it and good government groups, uh, you know, terrible in terms of transparency, terrible in terms of, of democracy. It was you really, think you deserve that? It was a funda- yeah, sure. It was a fundamentally anti-democratic place when I first got there. It has, it has improved quite a bit, but still got a long way to go in my my view. But it was what holds it back from really growing in the right direction. I think that you know, I think that there has been a a long-term attachment to the status quo. People resist change. And I think this year's election presents an opportunity for some really fundamental change. We've already had a whole series of senior senators, state senators, announcing they're going to retire. I think you're going to see new leadership there and a lot of, uh, quite a few new people elected. And I think that's going to provide the impetus for change. When I got there, it was remarkable because the leaders controlled everything. I mean, it was really this, the majority leader of the state senate uh, controlled whether you had a big suite of offices in the top floor of the legislative office building or you were in a basement, and uh, what he, they controlled, had dictatorial control over what bills come to the floor. So groups would come up and say, will you support this bill? Will you, you know, check the boxes on our checklist for environmental concerns or health care concerns or gun control? 
And it didn't really make that much. I realized after a while it didn't make any difference. Uh, I was debating bills trying to change people's minds, and then I realized after a few months no bill ever comes to the floor and loses. It was all, the, it was all fixed staged. in the back room. Yeah, it yeah. felt like you know, I was in one of those phony governments in the Eastern European bloc where you pretend you're the parliament, but the Politburo is making the decisions behind the scenes. That's what Albany was like when I got there. The state Senate term is how long? Is it four years? Two years. The state Senate term is two years, and the assembly term is two years. Two. I thought it was two. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was two and four, uh, not two and six like the federal. So it was a two-year term for that. And you served how many terms? I was there from 98, and then I ran for—I uh, got elected in 98. So from 99, uh, my last so term— So you ran for AG? And then I ran for AG. And, you, were, you, were, and, you were in the state Senate when you ran for AG. Correct. What's the political chessboard look like then when you're going to run for AG? Who was AG and was leaving and why? Cuomo was the AG and he was leaving because of the bizarre circumstances of Elliot Spitzer becoming governor with overwhelming popularity and not lasting very long. And then David Patterson lasting a little bit longer. But the, no, I had certainly not expected the attorney general's office to be open in 2010, but it opened up. And uh, well, we, what did you say to yourself? Well, I had, I had a seat in the Senate. The Democrats were in the majority that term, and, would, and being in the Senate in the majority is a, a nice, secure gig. But I, at that point, I really had, you know, I'd, I'd been through everything in the Senate. I'd run the Senate campaign committee. I'd been the floor leader for the Democrats, which was fun because we never got the, the bills to like an hour before session. So it was like doing improv. I was just, you know, debating bills without, while I was learning about the laws. More so than any other bodies, legislative bodies are very much about seniority and about people developing relationships. It's a system. It's a system. It is a system. Right. And a lot, and people get, uh, most people want to fit in, in the environment where, you know, they are at, at work and people wanted to fit in. And you got a lot of, I got, a, when I was, I had come from, a, you know, the private sector, and I was less patient with the old ways than a lot of people. A lot of folks said, no, you got to try and get along. you gotta, got to get along and settle down and that kind of thing. And it just wasn't me. So uh, I was ready to try something different, and it was giving up a very nice, safe gig to take a shot at something. And there were... And, and my first campaign was, in retrospect, a terrific campaign. And when people, how does that process begin? Meaning, like, who do you call on the phone? Who do you contact and say, I want to run for AG? Well, how do you launch that process? You contact who? There wasn't a very strong sense of the state party managing things at that point in history. There were a bunch of people who stepped up to run open seat, surprise open seat. And it was, it was, a, it was really— In the primary. In the primary, it was a good campaign. We had smart lawyers— uh, we had lots of debates. So not somebody you call because New York State is so insular that way. No, there really there really wasn't a boss a, a boss at that point in time. Well, I would talk to people, and you know, I had relationships with folks who influenced you to make that decision. Well, a lot of the different progressive groups that I had worked with over the years, um, I had been on the board of Citizen Action of New York and uh, Citizen Action, and their, that whole network. So constituency influenced you, sure, and I had and. I had strong relationships with folks in the pro-choice movement, LGBT equality movement, and uh, I talked to people about the potential for the attorney general's office and what I could do. I had uh, done a lot of legal work. I had, when I was back in private practice, I sometimes like to say the money-making phase of my career ended when they made me the pro bono partner of the law firm, and I started, I realized how much more I like public interest work. So I'd been the lawyer for Nyberg, Straphanger's campaign. I had done... Uh, 
you know, I'd, I'd been around in this sort of network of progressive activists, and I had a I base of support will. there. Yeah, and, and I got a lot of encouragement, and my colleagues in some of my colleagues in the Senate stepped up and really were very supportive, and that gave me the ability to make connections in other parts of the state. So it, uh, the campaign was launched, and it was wild, but I must say— Who that, was your closest competitor? Uh, well, Kathleen Rice, who's now in Congress, was the district attorney in Nassau County at the time. Richard Brodsky, an assembly member, run, right. ran a, a couple of good lawyers in private practice. And compared to every other campaign I've been in, it was— certainly the most stimulating and challenging. The debates were great. People would remember, say, you know, and last time we debated, you said this about the Securities Fraud Act, and then people would continue the conversations. So it was terrific. Then I won, I won the primary, and then the general election reverted to more typical American politics, which we didn't have much in the way of debates. And the Republican opponent. Republican was opponent. And who, who was that? Oh, it was Dan Donovan, who's okay. now a congressman. I what saw, kind of attorney general did you want to be compared to your predecessors? Yeah, the New York State Attorney General's office is and has been uh, for years before I even got there, you know, one of the most extraordinary public law firms in the country. And really going back to Louis Lefkowitz and Bob Abrams, it, it really emerged as a preeminent advocate for consumers, for protecting uh, the most vulnerable among us. And up as an impressive tradition. Up through Spitzer and Cuomo and, and, you know, making law and showing leadership. So I took over an office that had a good tradition. And but what was someone doing that you wanted that you didn't think they should be doing? And what were they not doing you thought they should be doing? What were the sins of omission and commission? How did you want to change the office? Well, I mean, I, I having spent more time than my predecessors in private practice, I really wanted to use the lessons I had from the private sector. I wanted to have the best public law firm in the country. I wanted to make sure that we had, uh, we, we improved training, uh, that we tore down the silos between different bureaus and established a, a, a really productive, aggressive, but collegial atmosphere. And it's just been an amazing experience building it up because, you know, I had this great, funny conversation with, with Andrew, who was going to become governor. He said, well, I'm not going to take everybody from here because, you know, I... Elliot brought all these prosecutors and thought prosecutors could run everything. And then he got to Albany and realized there was nobody there in a lot of the agencies. So he came back and took a lot more people. And at first, that was a, a problem because, we, you know, we had to staff up quickly. It's really remarkable in the, in the government of the United States. You get elected in November. Then you have six weeks, including Thanksgiving and Christmas, to hire all these people you've never met. And then you entrust your career to them. Former New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. Coming up, we talk about hashtag MeToo and New York state politics. With his resignation, New York loses a Democratic Party leader. Schneiderman understood before most members of his party the importance of state politics and its relationship to federal politics. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. 
Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Now, more from my conversation last Thursday with former New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman. Do you think that the uh, that friction between Cuomo and de Blasio is hurting either the state government or particularly the city government? I don't know how much it's, it's hurting. I think that it, you know, I try to work with everybody, and, you know, I think it's more productive to try and get along and find common ground. And uh, so, you know, I encourage I encourage everyone to do that. You don't think it's hurting the city? I mean, you know, it it may be in but some the city respects. Seems like it's let's really... put it let's put it this way. I think it would probably be better for everyone to try and work together and find whatever common ground we can. Because, quite honestly, we're in a moment of history where the biggest challenges we face are from the federal government. And so, um, you know, it's a good time to be putting aside uh, other more parochial issues, and there are people banding together remarkably, uh, some folks who might disagree on a lot of things, but understand the level of threat we're under to our constitutional structure and the rule of law. And we have, I'm very proud of the work that we've done uh, assembling a coalition to really form the core of the legal resistance to bad public policies that spew out of Washington. What's the update on the estate, on the writing off your state income taxes? What's the update on that now? Well, we've, we've, they've passed some laws in, in Albany to create some workarounds. They will be challenged and we'll, we'll see where it they'll shakes out at the, the end of the day. They, they'll be, well, or they'll be challenged by some, you know, taxpayer group or something and I'll defend, be defending them in court. Uh, look, this, the, the tax bill was a uh, dagger in the back of New York State and and, and other states, similar states and other states and blue states, we have to deal with it. Yeah, look, it's 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 an important thing to understand the the context we're in. We're in a historical moment where uh, there are efforts underway to undermine a lot of the basic 
components, in my view, of our constitutional structure. And this is a test of our the federalist constitutional fabric we have. State and local governments have a tremendous power reserved to them under our, our constitutional system. And this is a time when you're seeing, it's an era of what I call progressive federalism, where you're seeing states rise up. And in my view, the coalition of state attorneys general that I'm a part of is more of, more of an effective check on excesses the administration than the Democrats in Congress. They try to do what they can, but they're in the minority. I hope mm-hmm. they'll be in the majority soon. But over the last year and a half, uh, my office and other attorneys general's offices really emerged as a bulwark uh, of our constitutional structure against bad public policies that spew out of Washington like debris from some toxic volcano. Is it time in your mind, having lived in New York and you were a New Yorker, but you worked in Albany, for the state to give back control of the city to the city? By and large, the city runs itself, but it's important to understand, and this is really important to understand in the Trump era for everyone to get, the basic unit of the United States of America is and has always been the state. The states created the federal government. States create local governments. Every state in the union has ultimate power over local governments, and that is something that the conservatives figured out a long time ago and invested a tremendous amount in taking over state governments. As of the 2016 election, Republicans controlled 34 of the 50 governorships, 69 of the 99 state legislative chambers, and that gave them a huge advantage, which I think was a a factor that people do not pay enough attention to in the 2016 loss in the Trump-Clinton election. States control who votes. A dozen states passed voter suppression laws between 2012 and 2014 that cost Hillary Clinton many more votes. They're the lever that really controls the democracy. Yeah. In and state. I think that they're, we're in a period now. They where do people, districting. They control reapportionment. They, and so, and state legislatures are the bench for Congress. So it's, there's a tremendous advantage there. Now, I feel that there is a transformation going on in among the electorate. People are getting more active and people are focusing in more on state issues. I mean, we had a special election in a swing state Senate seat. April 24th in Westchester, and they had thousands of volunteers. I used to run Senate campaigns. We never had, we didn't have hundreds of volunteers, much less thousands of volunteers. So I feel that we're in a time where there's a political movement rising up. And this is the first time since I was a kid, as I said, that I felt the level of energy we had in the late 60s and early 70s. And I think it's a great thing for the country. But the fight is going to really be much more at the state level um, than we will fight to control Congress. But the real battle is taking back state governments. You, think, that, that, you think this governor has given this mayor the autonomy that he wants? Not always, but, but you know, if you look at it, there really are not that many major points of contention. Uh, I think it gets, it gets a lot of attention because of the, the press senses, the sort of personal animosity. But in terms of public policy, people work together much Do you much, think the personal animosity is hurting more. the city? As day-to-day, people work together a lot more than— uh, than many so these than are the exceptions, right? Yeah. You know, in my lifetime, one of the things that was always uh, among the headline-grabbing activities of the state's attorney, attorney general was fighting organized crime. And I'm wondering, is organized crime pretty much dead in New York now? Is the mafia gone? Well, no, there, there's still organized crime, and we have an organized crime task force that works with mostly with smaller jurisdictions where they don't have the resources to deal with it. There are a lot of different—it's much more diffuse than it was. You don't have the old-style five families families, controlling everything going on anymore. But you have a lot of gangs. 
and uh, a lot of multi-ethnic gangs, different yeah. different ethnic. You know, the issues that we deal with now are things like drug trafficking and gun trafficking. Uh, we have done more work on issues related to guns than the office has ever done in the past. But yeah, there's still gang activity. It's not like the old the Godfa- days, the old yeah. Godfather movie sort of house, things. Yeah, yeah. not not uh, right. I understand. I mean, an obvious subject to talk about uh, in a city like New York. But I was told uh, there's a kind of kind of an embargo on this for you about talking about the Me Too. You would prefer not to talk about that subject, correct? We have an investigation into the Weinstein yeah. companies yeah. and are involved with uh, uh, a variety of matters related to that. So uh, uh, can't touch on that. I mean, look, the movement is extraordinary. I think it's changing the conversation. It is a part of what I see as this moment of social transformation and of the emergence of a new political movement, but it's, uh, you know, that's a whole other podcast. Do you think that uh, the um, announcement by Cynthia Nixon that she's going to run, I mean, many, many people feel that a lot of women are coming to the fork because this is the time, that uh, there's always been a relatively low percentage of people running for office who are women. I mean, comparatively speaking, it's it's, it's improved over the years, but, but people really feel that now is a uniquely special time. I mean, I know Cynthia. I've worked with Cynthia. If you work in this business, you worship Cynthia as one of the most talented actresses alive. I mean, she really is this phenomenally talented woman, just such integrity and honesty. Just as an actress, I just have to say that she's just so remarkable. But uh, most people agree in the money talks uh, realm, he's so loaded with money. uh, uh, Does that alone, you know, this is a very quixotic thing for her. Why do you think she would do that? I don't know. I do think that we're seeing a lot more new people running for office than we have seen before. I think that it's— Non-traditional people. Non-traditional people who haven't worked their way up through the political system. I mean, in some places, we have some congressional districts where we haven't—it seems like we have too many candidates, Democrats who all want to run from some with extraordinary backgrounds. But I think it's a part of this change. I have—look, I worked for years to try and get people involved— in politics. When I was in the state Senate with overwhelmingly Democratic state, Republicans still held the majority. I tried to get major national Democratic donors to help us out. No one was interested in the state Senate. And that has transformed. Since Trump got elected, I feel that this was what it took to get people awake, off the sidelines, energized. The the proliferation of all these hundreds of indivisible groups all over New York State. I meet with them and other organizations. The, the, all of this new infrastructure that has risen up in the last year and a half is phenomenal. And it is we are starting to get to the point where we can actually compete with the conservatives and their amazing infrastructure they built over 30 uh-huh. years. Uh-huh. They invest first in infrastructure. They will uh-huh. make sure the American... Political infrastructure. Uh, political infrastructure. The Heritage <laughs> Foundation. Roads, the, the American... <laughs> no, political infrastructure. That's right. The uh, American Enterprise Institute, Competitive Enterprise Institute, they've created this great infrastructure. We now see, uh, in a very different way, because it's much more decentralized, the emergence of a political infrastructure that can counterbalance that. And people are interested in running for office, people are interested in supporting candidates for office. Again, state Senate special election, April 24th, Democrats didn't used to even show up for special elections. Mm-hmm. Thousands of volunteers and and a wipeout victory. So uh, I think... Who's the head of the state party now? Well, the governor's the head of the state party. Is there a chairman of the... There's no person... Yes, yes. Byron Brown, the Byron mayor of Buffalo, Brown, yeah. is, is right. a chair of the state party. I remember when party. Judy Hope, I worked with Judy Hope, and she was running when the she party. Was the, when she was the chair. To get Chuck elected, to get Hillary elected, yeah. And, and look, it's it's... A fascinating time, and, and increasingly, 
you know, I'm doing work for candidates from other states and helping speaking at fundraisers in New York for candidates from other states. A lot more interest in state races than there ever was. We've got terrific people running for attorney general in states around the country. And a special initiative, as you just relating to what you just said, um, of the Democratic Attorney General's Association to recruit more women to run. Uh, so I think that there is uh, there's a lot of energy out there, a lot of desire to have non-traditional candidates run for office, and it's a good thing. I want to just do a couple quick ones and try to get a quick answer to these. Is there anything you think can be done? Is there, is there something you guys are working on now that can affect the homeless issue here in the city? Because you do well, affect we, public policy that way, don't you? We do because we have a, a tenant protection task force, and one of the things we are working on, and this is in conjunction with both the city and state agency right. all working together to try and ensure that housing that's supposed to be affordable, right. rent regulated, is maintained and that there there are not unscrupulous landlords uh, trying to game the system, force people out of their homes so they can take take apartments out of rent regulated status. So preserving affordable housing is an ongoing struggle because the upside is so huge. The, the difference now between a rent-regulated apartment, and if you can get it out into the free market, it creates a strong incentive for an unscrupulous landlord to mm-hmm. do that. But I think you, you can see a lot of different federal and state actors, including our office, engaged in the project. One of the challenges we face now, Alec, is that with the federal government in, in the hands of people who are committed to a very radical form of conservatism, you're not going to see big housing programs or big transportation programs uh, coming out of the federal government. So the challenge, again, falls to those of us at the state level more and more to fill that gap. We say in my office often that our three tasks in the Trump era are to fill in where the federal government falls back if they won't enforce, not sitting around waiting for Jeff Sessions to start enforcing civil rights laws. We enforce civil rights laws. Right. Right. Uh, We fill in where they fall back. We fight back when the federal government is attacking the people we represent, whether it's sanctuary cities or withdrawing protections from LGBT students, failure to enforce environmental laws, indicted efforts by Pruitt and company to dial back environmental laws. And we've sued them. The Times did a story in December marking my 100th legal action against the administration, and we're way past that by now. And we are joined by other attorneys general, lawyers for local governments, public interest lawyers, Lawyer firms doing pro bono work, law schools are sending us their students. The legal resistance that has uh, developed over the last year and a half is something I'm very proud of. What, what, what were the, was that the third one you were saying? Oh, and the, the third, the third right. one, fill in, fight back. And the third one is we have to show the way to move ahead. Right. We can't just be against something. Yeah. And Pinky smart fights. progressive yeah. governance is going to be modeled at the state level. So models for reforming the criminal justice system are going to happen at the state level. For, is mass incarceration an issue for you? Uh, it's a huge issue for me. Uh, since I worked in the prison between college and law school, I've been, and I watched, uh, you know, us go from a country with maybe three or 400,000 people in jails and prisons all over America to have 2.5 million a decade or so ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, now the tide is turning very dramatically. And uh, in New York, we are bringing our prison population down while the crime rate goes down. Mm-hmm. That's the future. This is a failed there national experiment. There has to be a experiment. link between those two. Yeah. It's a failed national experiment in mass incarceration. It doesn't make us safer. And I think that people, people are waking up to that. Most Americans think there are too many people in prison now. Whatever the conservatives push on this issue, I think they're losing that war. Three quick bullet points. One is, now that I have the attorney general of the state of New York here explain, does Trump have a pardon power over people convicted of state crimes and state courts? Uh, no. The president can pardon for federal offenses— uh, he can't pardon for state crimes, but 
because New York has a uh, the most uh, restrictive double jeopardy statute in the country, that means that if uh, someone gets to the eve of trial and the president pardons them under New York's statute, we would not be able to go after them for a state crime. And you propose a change in that law, correct? We have proposed to uh, modify the double jeopardy statute. It has been modified quite a few times in the past to enable us to pursue people who we don't want to interfere with the regular presidential clemency and pardons that come usually after someone has served a lot of time in prison. But we, were, we are concerned that we should change the statute to prevent essentially preemptive pardons, pardons where someone doesn't ever serve Political a day pardons. in jail. <laughs> so it doesn't serve a day in jail, but it gets off. And because of the, the way that our statute operates, it functionally gives Trump the ability to block state prosecutions as well as federal prosecutions, and that's something that we're out to change. So we've got legislation in the Assembly and the Senate. We've got sponsors, and we're moving aggressively to try and get that passed this session. You've got a myriad of responsibilities. You've got such a complex job. But is there ever time that material comes across your desk, a case, an issue, something that really moves you, that really is important to you? And I call that the moment where you turn to your office and say, close the door. And you like sit there with a file and just start reading and reading and just immerse yourself in something that is deeply personal to you. What would be an example of that you would cite? Oh, yeah. What uh, issue? There are cases that, that come our way that uh, – where the facts are really devastating. And, uh, you know, look, some of these uh, cases that we take on in my capacity as a special prosecutor when uh, unarmed civilians die in contact with police officers, a lot of these cases are tragedies. Whether the, the cops did anything wrong or not, they are people who didn't didn't deserve to die. And, uh, and most of the circumstances reflect poverty uh, often, drug and alcohol abuse, just again reminding me of my days back in the jail. But there are a lot of people living in really tragic circumstances. Cases that relate to uh, children uh, move me deeply. We get cases where you have uh, child abuse, we have trafficking cases. Uh, I have to say that the my, our inquiry into what happened at the Weinstein companies was like taking a taking a swim in a sewer and we still that's still an ongoing matter so there are cases that get to me personally and affect me i think the um the nice thing about this work is very often uh, we have a lot of creative lawyers working for me and I'm incredibly proud of our team we can think of ways to address issues that uh, sometimes elude others we, we try and be as creative as possible now that means sometimes Alec, we take on cases that are hard to win but sure. uh, I'm not someone who is a prosecutor who looks to have a 99% batting average. We're willing to try some things that are that are harder in order to do justice. But we're the oversight board or whatever it is, the oversight group here in New York with the police department announced that they want to try to have more transparency. And there's been this back and forth with them. Uh, what influence does the state attorney general operation have on the police department of the city of New York? There's just no way you can... Affect that? No, the, case. no. The city agencies. Is everything there with? Is everything that in terms of contracts and everything is worked out to a fairly well with the police in terms of what they're what they're expected to do and not do in terms of transparency? Yeah, I mean that's not really something that's in our wheelhouse. We have. You leave that to the city. Yeah, we do, and we work with the NYPD a lot. We deal with them in our organized crime task force and others. We're working with them on gun issues and other things, and it's a, and. As, as law enforcement agencies go in the United States, it's an incredible agency. But, uh, you know, there are always struggles about uh, the need for transparency. Uh, and I think we've made a lot of tremendous progress. I mean, keep in mind, 
we cut stops and frisks by 97% in New York City, and crime continues to go down. I mean, this is, this is the safest big city in America, and that reflects a lot of good work by a lot of people for many years. I'm told that there's steam coming out of the ears of your staff, your chief of staff here, but I'm assuming that in order for you to move elsewhere to the next place to have your public service destiny, something has to happen to somebody else. Uh, there's only three statewide jobs that make sense for you. Is it safe to say that? And no, look, I think people... are happy to stay where you are for the time being? Yeah, I mean, I'm running for re-election right. now, and but I after that, expect to run a great campaign moving around the state and helping down-ballot races. And then, uh, look, I'm, I'm very much committed to continuing to build and lead the legal resistance to what's going on in Washington. Right. I'm very inspired to be a state actor in this era of progressive federalism. It's a great federalism. work cut out for you the next term. And for the next couple of years, and then uh, we'll see what happens. I, I'm... I want to get us through this four years of Trump and Pence, and then, uh, and then, at that point, I'm really playing with house money. I, we got to get through this period of national trauma, and I can play in a role that's beyond anything I ever would have expected. And uh, I'm pleased to be doing it. We will never know what kind of impact Eric Schneiderman could have had on the 2020 elections. His resignation from his post as New York Attorney General is effective as of 5 p.m. today, Tuesday, May 8th. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.